0: Book of Ephesians chapter six, we're going to read that passage, and then immediately thereafter, we're going to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So Hebrews chapter 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, we'll begin reading as I noted, Ephesians 6, verse 21. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Titicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, We'll read two verses, beginning in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those. The word appreciate is translated here as the word to know. But we request of you, brethren, that you know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you may esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. We noted this morning that Paul is again using himself as an example so that the church at Ephesus would know about his circumstances. In other words, how he is doing. We took a look at those circumstances. He certainly had dire circumstances. He was in prison. He was under hardship. And he was under financial straits. We would have never known about those circumstances except for the fact that the church at Philippi on many previous occasions, had also sent with Epaphroditus a gift for the Apostle. And Paul responds to that gift in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. We know that his circumstances involved bodily ailments because the physician Luke was with him, And we also know that he was under constant affliction. And we also know that he was being tempted. When we think about how he's doing, we have to understand that what that question really refers to is how is the gospel working in him and through his life? And, of course, we know that he was being tempted to cheapen the message of the cross. Why do we know that? Because he requested prayer about this, did he not? We know that he was being tempted to withhold the cross of Christ from the gospel. We know that because he requested prayer for these things. And we also know that he was being tempted to be silent in his proclamation. And typically, we wouldn't think of the Apostle Paul being tempted that way. I think when we think of Paul, we think of some, you know, bull in the china shop type of guy that's just going to go and give the gospel no matter what. But he was human like we are. And he was being tempted to be timid about it or to be silent, and so he requests prayer that the Lord would grant him boldness in presenting that gospel. But we also know that when it comes to how he is doing, that Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 20 really help us with that. He was working out the advancement of that gospel he was communicating that gospel, and he was living it. And he would word it this way. For me to live is Christ. To die, that's what? That's gain. That's an amazing statement from a man who, at least toward the end of that house imprisonment, had been imprisoned five of the several years that he was there, two or three in Caesarea, two in the rented house. He had learned, the gospel had taught him this, he had learned to be content in whatever situation that he found himself in. He knew how to be content when he abounded, he knew how to be content when he was in lack. He knew how to be content when he was in a nice home. He knew how to be content if he was in a cave. He knew what the peace of God reigning and guarding his heart looked like. And he learned this, did he not? And I would say that he was continually having to learn it. You don't ever get to a plateau where you said, okay, I am perfectly conformed to Christ in this area, let's go to the second one. There's always more to abound in. So we do know his circumstances, and we do know how he was doing. And we also know that his aim was that the saints at the church at Ephesus would be encouraged. And of course they certainly would have been encouraged as they watched Paul living out the gospel in the context and circumstances in which he was in. They certainly would have been encouraged in hearing of the progress of the mystery of the gospel among the Praetorian guard. And they certainly would have been encouraged when they heard of his increased courage in the midst of these things. But the primary way that the church was to be strengthened and encouraged was by the epistle that he wrote to them. And brethren, there's no way that you can read this thinking about Paul's circumstances and how he's doing and how what he wrote down was living in his life and being worked out and not thank God for this and not be encouraged ourselves. The grace and peace that we see in his life, the illumination and the strengthening in Paul's life, Paul growing up in all things in his life and certainly he was fighting the good fight of faith to walk a worthy walk before the Lord in the midst of his circumstances. And folks, that really is a great model for us, is it not? And it is a (coughs) challenge for us. Now we are not only to know Paul's circumstances... And how Paul is doing. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 state that the church is to know their leadership. It says, We request of you, brethren, that you know those who diligently labor among you. Here our translation has the word appreciate. This goes way beyond just... You know, giving them a card and saying, I appreciate you. This is to know them. And I take that to mean that you and I are to know the leadership within the house of God, that we're to know their circumstances. And we are to know how they are doing. Those who are evangelist missionaries, those who are pastor teachers, as it were, they are on the front line of the warfare. If the shepherd is slain, the sheep scatter. And that is true, that if the under-shepherd is slain, the sheep are under the temptation to scatter and hard times tend to promote that. You'll notice here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 that he speaks of those elders or pastors by using the plural term. We request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. Verse 13, that you esteem them, plural, very highly in love because of their work. This church was only three to six weeks old in age, and yet there were mature men placed over them, I assume by Paul or who, Timothy, to give guidance and direction to that church according to their maturity. They couldn't have been mature for very what? For very long. They certainly hadn't been to seminary or got an MDiv or a PhD. But here they had shown characteristics of eldership and they had shown a maturity, some maturity with the handling of the word of God. No doubt these men were not paid. Now, Having said that, I would assume that the congregation would look over their needs, but typically in the New Testament, those churches did not run 300. They did not run 500 or 1,000. I heard of a church, we were traveling down the road and they had right on their website. We passed a church. We looked it up on our smartphones. They had right there on their website. We have over 12,000 members. So you can tell that they wanted to be prominent up on their website. The church at Thessalonica certainly was not 12,000 members. And yet, here they are. What were they doing? Here's some characteristics. We wanted to get to know our elders. Here's some characteristics. Verse 12 Know those who diligently labor. When we're talking about the office of a pastor, teacher, we're talking about a labor, a toil. The word means to work to exhaustion. There is a tiring effect being the overseer of a congregation. (coughs) Their labor or their toll certainly would be in the preaching and instruction to the church as a whole. But it would also involve preaching instructing individually. I remember when our former pastor, Dr. Tenetti, was here, and he was up in age, and he told me, and I'm using his words, I don't think these are probably the best way to say it, but we'll all get the gist of it. He would say, I preach once on Sunday, it takes me a whole week to get over it. Now, what was he saying? He was saying there was a toil associated with preaching. How many times? One time. And it took him a whole week to recover strength. Now, needless to say, if you're young, that doesn't exactly operate that way. But, no pastor that I know of would say, That preaching, teaching, two, three, four times on the Lord's Day, that they don't come home in the evening totally spent, regardless of their age. I think most congregation members don't think about that. There's an exhaustion there, and that's just an exhaustion in the delivery and the giving of it. Let alone the toil involved in preparing for it. They had to declare the Word of God to the Ephesian, to the Thessalonican church. They had to provide oversight to a local New Testament assembly. They have to make sure they're feeding the flock and not them receiving it merely as information only. They have to be on guard to protect the flock from who? False teachers. They have to warn people and that always involves personal discomfort and pain to do so. They have to know how to be happy when you're happy and then talk to the next person and be sad when they're sad. And then not be hypocritical but genuine. They have to model the mystery of the gospel to the best of their ability for that congregation. And in light of all that, and I haven't even mentioned study, but in light of all that, many men have to have outside employment. So many men work all week, And basically, try to do everything that I've said to you on Saturday. And the men that I have known that have had to do that, what always suffers is the study and the message. They just don't have what? They just don't have the time. And they are to be people who are giving. They're, they're to be like the sun, S-U-N. Have you ever noticed that the sun, S-U-N, is always shining? Meaning what? It's always giving. The sun never stops giving. And of course, that's illustrative, is it not, to God. God is always giving. There's a giving of time. There's a giving of money. There's a sacrifice. All of these things are involved in the labor that is to be given among the people of God. You'll notice here also in verse 12 that they have charge over you in the Lord, they lead. They rule. They take public leadership in the spiritual affairs of the church, and part of that spiritual affairs includes the business of the church. Now, of course, the boundaries of it, you'll see it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12 is, they have charge over you in the Lord. And when you read something like that, immediately you are reminded that this is like the wife. The wife is to submit to her husband in the, in the Lord. The husband is to rule in his home in the Lord. And we took a look at what that meant in Ephesians 5, and I don't intend to cover that again. They have to have a proper attitude, <coughs> they have to have a broad range of knowledge. Someone has likened the pastor-teacher to the general practitioner or the doctor. If you go to your family doctor, they have to have knowledge about a lot of ranges of diseases, don't they? But if you get something that is really serious, let's say you have cancer, they send you (coughs) off to a a specialist. In general, a pastor teacher in a local New Testament church is a general practitioner. He's not the academian in the university. He's not the one that writes the book, who spends 50 years of their life studying the Trinity, and writes the definitive manual on the Trinity. That is a, that's a specialist. He has to have a broad understanding of the Scripture and how to apply it to be a help to the people that are under his shepherding. And he has to have wisdom. Not all knowledge is communicated to each individual person individually the same. With one, you could use technical terms. You could apply to church history. You could even use Latin, which are orthodox definitions carried down through church history. To another person, you're trying to communicate the exact same thing, but you don't talk that way. You have to word it in a way that that person can want Understand it and receive it. You've got to know how to do that. Do pastor teachers ever fail in that? Just nod your head yes. Just like you and I often fail with that. And parents, you know a little bit of this because you know that even though you teach many of the same things, teaching it to your children can take on different terminology depending on their age Depending on their maturity, depending on their education, all of that comes to play when you are instructing your children. That is true in a local New Testament assembly. So they are toiling. That ought to give you some indication on how to pray. Right? Right? They are taking lead or ruling. That ought to give you some indication on how to pray. And they are also to admonish. It says here, verse 12, Have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. That's the word admonish. That admonishment can come corporately and that admonishment can come individually. Admonishment basically means to put them in mind of what they know. (coughs) It can carry with it a warning. You know this, don't do that. It can come to you as an exhortation. You know this, let's what? Let's do it. It can come in the form of correction. You can put them in mind for something because they're just not doing it. Or it could be that you really need to teach them individually. Now folks, what that means is is that in a local New Testament assembly that at times your conscience could be pained by the pastor-teacher. Right? We call that conviction. I could be preaching something and the Holy Spirit just put His finger on something and it causes you pain. It could be that I'm speaking to you and I say something to you that your conscience says yes and you feel sorrowful because of it. It could mean that you feel guilty. It could mean that you're frustrated or it could even mean that you really feel in your heart a warning. All of that includes admonishment. So pastors toil. Pastors take lead or rule. And they admonish people. And folks, really, when counsel or God's thoughts Across our own perceived understanding, we can have fill up in our souls various feelings. And folks, when I think about this, I always am reminded of that illustration with Naaman. He has leprosy, right? He goes and sees the man of God. The man of God tells him what? Mm-hmm. Go dip in the go dip in the Jordan. He's like Don't we have rivers where I came from? Now what does that mean? That means the counsel that was given to him crossed his perceived understanding. Did he have feelings? He had a flood of feelings, sinful feelings. And finally, one of his men said, now look, if he had asked you to climb, jump over tall buildings with a single bound, you would have done it. Why won't you just go dip in the Jordan? And he went and what? He went and did it and he was cleansed. But here's the point. The council crossed our own perceived understandings of what to do or what to say or whatever. And we had a response in our spirit about that. Now, the admonishment is not only the responsibility of a church's elders, it actually is the responsibility of every member. You are to admonish what? one another. But a pastor, teacher, an evangelist, missionary specifically deals in this pretty much 24-7 of his ministry. Now folks, I just want to stop at this point (coughs) because we're getting to know. This is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you to know the circumstances of those who have charge over you? How would you pray in light of these three things? I encourage you, when you go home, or in the morning, when you have your devotions, take those three things and start writing things under them. For instance, if we're talking about toil, here's an obvious one. They need strength. Is that not obvious? Well, we can pray for that. If we're talking about leadership, rule, then we can think about wisdom. We can think about the multitude of decisions. When we think about admonishment, we can pray for those types of things that they need wisdom and the proper spirit and forbearance. I mean, we can go through a lot of things, could we not, to pray for those who have charge over us. But folks, here, here is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, a responsibility that is laid upon the congregation. All I've done is describe in this passage, within this context, the attributes of elders. But there is a responsibility that the congregation, my responsibility to you, I'm to toil, I'm to admonish, I'm to lead. Everybody see that? But there's a responsibility of the congregation back to those who are In leadership in that local New Testament assembly. And the reason for that responsibility is this one of the greatest conflicts that enters into a church congregation often deals with its leadership. Look at verse 13 that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and then what does Paul say? Live in peace with one another. Well, folks, who's the one another there? Certainly it's everybody in that congregation, right? But who's he talking about? He's talking about the relationship between the leadership and the church and the relationship with the church to the leadership. He's telling them, live in peace with one another. And I'm not sure, I don't have any polls about this, but I'm not sure that most of the time, perhaps the majority of the time, conflicts happen within a church because someone's having a conflict with the leadership of that congregation. And I do think that it is a mistake to always take the position that the problem is always with the pastors. Now, I found, I pastored two churches and I worked in a church prior to that. I found that people generally if they lean in any direction in a conflict, they will always lean against the authorities. In other words, if you say something bad about an authority, nine times out of ten, they'll say, I see that. (laughs) I agree with that. That's kind of our fallen nature with that. But I also think that it is a mistake to take the position... That the problem lies with the church as a whole. It is interesting that I hardly ever hear that the problem lies with the person having the conflict. It's either the leadership of the church or the church as a whole, but never with that individual. And this is why the text says, you know those who labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace (coughs) with one another. It is hard as a pastor... The pastor. Years and years ago, this would have been 24 years ago, maybe 23 years ago in my former ministry, there was an individual, we were in a small community, everybody kind of knew each other, and there was an individual who was really ranting and raging about me and our church. And one of the ladies came up to me and she wanted to encourage me and she said this. She said it very dogmatically too. She said, you know what? She said, we can criticize our pastor, but we're not going to let anybody outside this church do it. Would you be encouraged by that statement? Well, you know, I think she meant it to be an encouragement. And I was thankful that she was going to take up the calls, as it were, and defend the name of the Lord and the name of the congregation. But it did bother me a little bit. But that's the way a lot of people in church feel. Every time the message is preached, the pastor knows that he's sowing seed. Some by the wayside. Would that bring you sorrow? Some that will wither under the heat of the day. Would that bring you pain? Some having no depth. Many hearts in which there are thorns, and the word will be choked. Now, every pastor knows that's exactly what's happening. But there are some in the good soil of their heart that that word grows. A pastor is pastoring a people in whom every message, every action is all being judged by the congregation. How would you like to have a group of 25 people judging everything you say and do? Sometimes pastors call this living in a fishbowl. You know what a fishbowl is? You know, you put the goldfish in there, and all the kids come up, and what do they do? They all put their nose right on the thing. I can imagine what the goldfish sees big eyes looking in the fishbowl. Now, my understanding is that being in a fishbowl is not bad. Because pastors are to be an example unto the believers, correct? And usually, I tell pastors that when they're, you know, upset because they feel like they're in a fishbowl, I will say, "Well, you know what? You're supposed to be the model." How would you like to be a family? I'll just say a family. How would you like to have 75 children in your family, all judging? parents your actions and decisions and activities. Or a hundred. Could you imagine a hundred? Or maybe two hundred or like that church. I don't know if twelve thousand people all show up on Sunday. (laughs) But I can't imagine to have twelve thousand people out there. And they're all looking in the (laughs) fishbowl. How would you pray for a man who's like that? And, folks, if you say to yourself, well, Pastor, you're just making something up. Well, you've forgotten, I'm going to admonish you now, you've forgotten 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where Paul says, If I be judged of you, the Corinthians were putting Paul under the microscope. And they were judging his appearance. They were judging his style of preaching. And it is carnality, but it does go on. In 2017, I had a pastor write me. It was an email. I had a pastor write me who was very discouraged in his ministry. I still have that email. And in that email, he was wrestling with the fact that his congregation was getting smaller and smaller. And I I wrote to to strengthen and encourage him. And in that email, here's a paragraph that I wrote to him. And I'm quoting. Remembering others' kindnesses and investments in our lives is long forgotten among the Lord's people. I know that you have had people come into your ministry with all excitement and joy over the ministry of the word, only to find months or a few years later discontentment and disillusionment over what they were hearing. And then they leave. I'm still quoting. To justify their departure, they seek to find that one weakness in a pastor's life and having found that weakness, they then magnify it beyond due proportion. That was in 2017. To a man, a pastor, who a church should have been praying for, Because he was hurting. I am very thankful to say that he was strengthened. And he did stay. What do you think about knowing those who have rule over you? To know their circumstances. To know how they're doing. That pastor was not doing well. He was wrestling. Did you hear that as I read that email? And folks, that email... And that pastor's situation is not unusual. A congregation's corporate responsibility, verse 12, is to know those. To know their leadership. Yes, in the process you will come to know their weaknesses. There are no pastors without weaknesses. And there's no congregation members without weaknesses. You need to know the function of their office. And I've given you three things. You need to know how your leadership thinks. You need to know what motivates them. You need to understand how they make decisions. You need to know them like a husband-wife is to know one another. You know, when you've seen a husband and wife, my wife and I have experienced this, it's absolutely frightening. I will say something and she'll say, I was just thinking that. Or she'll say, I know what you're thinking right now. And a lot of times she's what? She's right. Why? How can she do that? Is she getting some ghostly thing coming down? Can she read your mind? No. She knows me. And, folks, when you know one another, you can pray more effectively for one another. Am I right? You can be specific other than just saying, Lord, bless the missionaries, give them a lot of people saved, help them start churches. But what about them? What about them? You're to know your leadership. Secondly, verse 13, you are to esteem your leadership. The word esteem means to value, to put a great worth upon them. Now, folks, I want us to note in verse 13 that pastors, teachers, evangelists, missionaries, they all have different personality traits. They all have differing spiritual gifts. They have different measures of spiritual gifts. They have different outside interests that they like to do. I like to ride a bicycle. Some of you, that has no appeal to you at all. None. You would never think to yourself, I want to go ride a bicycle with Pastor." But the Bible doesn't say to highly value your leadership because of a personality trait or certain outside activities that they may enjoy. You are to value them, look at the passage, very highly in what? Love. Divine love. If you don't value them in love for nothing else, you should value them in love because of the nature of their office, their toil, their admonishment, their overseeing. You ought to understand the nature of their labor in in that they are being spiritually attacked. Ecclesiastes says that the study of books is weariness. The multitude of to-dos that they have to do, and then there is the companionship of suffering, reproach, rejection. All right, now let me ask you this: Have I given you enough about the office of a pastor-teacher to pray? Have I given you? the circumstances, not all, that surround it, and how a pastor might need to be doing for you to be able to pray for them and to value them. Because knowing your pastors and esteeming them highly brings peace in a congregation. Everybody see that? Look at the passage. You esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in what? Live in peace with one another. A congregation that does value their leadership highly in love and gets to know them is a congregation that will walk in peace now folks let me ask you this question I'm going to turn the tables here a little bit do you want me to get to know you yes or no Of course. That's what makes the first few years of a ministry in a new church so difficult. You don't know the people. Would you like for a leadership, would you like for a church's leadership to love you and highly value you? Yes or no? Sure then doesn't it make sense to reciprocate it? Do you think that your pastor does not know your weaknesses? Like this lady that was trying to encourage me? It just struck me and I just brushed it off because I I knew her. A congregation's avoidance of relational disturbance is dependent on their knowing and valuing those that Christ has placed over them. And I'm quoting from 2017. Once a person lowers their esteem for the church and church leadership, they are in the process of becoming independent of the local body. And if a person does not take effort to know their leadership, then they become liable to receiving accusation against the leadership. Does that make sense? This is why Paul commands us as a New Testament church, know those who diligently labor among you like you would want to know Paul in his circumstances. You would want to know how Paul is doing. Know how your pastors are doing. Value them. Place a value upon them very highly in love, not as a cult following, (coughs) but in love because of their work. And if you would do that, you would not be a person who causes disturbance. You would live in peace with one another. And I do think, brethren, that in general, I was talking to my wife about this, in general, I can think of two people Who, not frequently, but fairly regularly. thinking of one person, probably five times over ten years. Who came to me. I was their pastor. They came to me and said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. Go behind closed doors. And this person said to me, Pastor, how are you doing? And I'm going to confess to you that when that person asked me that, I was not doing well. Now, he wasn't saying to me, oh, you're not doing well, now I'm going to go after you. He was saying, how are you doing? Because he what? He loved And He cared for me. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you what that did for me at that time. It almost turned me around from not doing well to doing well. Just because of that individual's highly esteeming me in love for the work's sake. Let's pray.